You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. There's been a lot of diversity even beyond contact tracing and solutions that people are trying to come up with. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hi, Dave. On this week's show, I've got the story of the Department of Homeland Security authorizing the collection of information on protesters. Ben covers a European court ruling affecting Facebook. And later in the show, my conversation with Alyssa Redmiles. She's a researcher in the security and privacy group at Microsoft Research. We'll be getting her take on the privacy concerns of the coronavirus tracking apps. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, why don't you kick things off for us? What do you have for us this week? So I have a major judicial decision coming from the European Union Court of Justice regarding data sharing between nations. So this is a ruling that was handed down in mid-July, so a couple of weeks ago when you all are listening to this. And it can have profound effects in how companies transfer European users' data to the United States and other countries. Just to give a little bit of background, this case goes back a number of years. There's a pro-privacy advocate in Austria by the name of Schrems. And he was concerned about the surveillance state in the United States after the Edward Snowden disclosures in 2013. He's actually an Austrian citizen, so a citizen of a nation that is a member of the European Union. And he brought a lawsuit in Ireland, actually, which is where Facebook's European headquarters are. I believe Microsoft's are there as well arguing that the data sharing between the European Union and the United States will not adequately protect his data according to European data protection and privacy regulations. And this was, of course, before GDPR. Prior to this decision, there was a program in place called the Safe Harbor Agreement that allowed European users' data to be moved to the United States. And it did have some provisions for the protection of that data. In 2015, this European Union Court of Justice held that the Safe Harbor Agreement uh, did not adequately protect user data privacy. Transferring data to a third country outside of the European Union was a risk because, frankly, the surveillance practices in the United States would allow the possible collection of private information from European users. So the European Union and the United States went back to the drawing board, came up with a revised agreement called the Privacy Shield, which I'm sure uh, most of our listeners have heard of. And it provided more enhanced protection for data. 
data. And the essence of the Privacy Shield is an agreement between the United States and the European Union that any data transferred to the United States will abide by standards that have been set up in this agreement. These standards were slightly lesser than the stringent privacy standards in the GDPR regulation, which was enacted in 2018. Hmm. So here we are in 2020. Mr. Schrems initiated a lawsuit trying to invalidate the privacy shield, and he was successful. Uh, The Hmm. court said that the privacy shield does not adequately protect European Union user data, that any data being transferred to countries outside the European Union has to be transferred to a country that protects data privacy to a substantial degree the way the European Union does. And in the view of this court, the United States does not do that. Uh, And in making that decision, they cite some of our surveillance practices. Yes, we've made some reforms since the Edward Snowden disclosures with the USA Freedom Act, which curbed some of our most egregious surveillance practices related to call detail records. There have been some other reforms, but we have not gone far enough. And so therefore, the privacy shield has been invalidated in the European Union. Now, there's another way that uh, companies can transfer this data, and that's just part of standard contractual agreements. So, you know, when you agree to the terms of service, a company itself can set terms saying any data that we transfer will abide by these stringent GDPR protections. Hmm. For the time being, those types of contractual agreements are sufficient. But Privacy Shield, which was about data transfers for companies, middle and, and smaller companies that can't afford, like the Microsoft people do, to hire the best lawyers and come up with these contractual agreements, these companies are no longer going to be able to take advantage of that privacy privacy shield, um, and they're opening themselves up as a result of this decision to legal liability in the European Union. So it's a, it's a pretty profound decision and something that was maybe not shocking, but, but certainly went further than many experts predicted. Hmm. Can you give us some insights on how do things like this on the international stage, how do things like this get enforced? So that's a great question. The biggest, I think, dilemma going forward is how is the European Union and its regulating bodies going to actually enforce this? We saw what happened with the end of safe harbor in 2015 is that companies didn't really change their practices. And it took a few years for regulators in the European Union to actually bring legal action against these companies in European courts. And in many cases, these companies kind of thought, well, you know, it's probably in our best interest to continue our current data practices. We can always try to supplement what we're doing with contractual language, which would make these data transfers legal. The European Union under the GDPR can bring enforcement actions against companies that aren't protecting user data. And so if these companies are adhering to GDPR as it relates to European data, but are doing international transfers of data to companies that are not abiding by these regulations, they will be subject to potential fines, sanctions, et cetera, in the European courts. I should also mention, you know, we talk about the United States because we're selfish and we're talking about our own country. And and we're talking about companies that are largely based in the United States. But this decision is is pretty broad. I mean, it also applies to countries with even worse data protection practices than ours, um, particularly some of the more authoritarian countries like China. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that can have, you know, particularly in the long term effects on how data is routed around the world. And it can, you know, it can potentially increase costs 
for some of these tech companies and force them to localize their data in the European Union, which may not be ideal from their perspective. So it could, you know, I think eventually have a pretty big impact. Because these standard contractual agreements are still acceptable, I don't think we're going to see many changes in the short term. And, you know, there's been some confusion as uh, some of the relevant agencies in Europe have tried to interpret this decision. Uh, I know the decision's in its infancy, so we're still kind of seeing which which way the winds are going to blow there. But I think in the long run, uh, this is a decision that really could have profound effects. What I wonder is if we start to see enforcement actions against these companies, are these companies going to go to the United States Congress and say, look, the European Union has now invalidated Safe Harbor and has now invalidated Privacy Shield. You need to come up with surveillance reforms to make sure that any future you know, multilateral agreement we form with the European Union is going to allow for uniform transfers of these data uh, without us running into the same problem. Hmm. Uh, and maybe that could be an impetus for Congress to pass stricter regulations on particularly national security surveillance, which is a you know, a major concern of this European court and, and privacy activists there. Could we find ourselves in a situation where if I'm, for example, on, on Facebook and you know, I have a friend who lives in the EU that I wouldn't be able to go look at their photos or see what they're up to, that that data would be restricted from me? That's the risk in the long term. I don't think we're going to see that data localization now. And certainly Facebook is the type of company that will have that standard contract clause. Mm -hmm. Um, And Facebook has said, for the time being, nothing changes. But if we start to get some startups who are coming up with applications who want to, to get into the social media game, they don't have these standard contractual clauses or, you know, in future lawsuits, the European uh, Union Court of Justice is more amenable to putting an eagle eye on some of these contractual clauses, then yeah, we could see more localization of, of data. But for now, you can still stock your European friends. Uh, <laughs> your, secret, <Q>. yeah, <laughs> your secret European girlfriend that you made up in high school. You could, right. Yeah. Now she, she's Canadian. Oh, she's, she's that's Canadian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lives right across the river in Niagara Falls. That's mm-hmm. Right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I only see her in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. All right. Well, interesting story for sure. My story this week uh, comes uh, from the Washington Post, written by Shane Harris. This is actually based on uh, reporting that was first done over on the Lawfare blog. And the title of this article is DHS authorizes personnel to collect information on protesters. It says threaten monuments. Now, Ben, as you and I are recording this, we are in the midst of witnessing federal enforcers. <laughs> I don't know what the sure. proper term for them. Yeah. They, are, they are federal uh, employees who are dressed in military-style outfits. They're wearing desert camo. Yeah. Not they identified. Have- uh, they are not wearing name badges that show which agency they're from. I think that's right. important they to say, note. Yeah. They, they have emblems that say police on them. They have a lot of, uh, I guess what I would describe probably imprecisely as tactical gear. Mm-hmm. They have some weapons. They were using tear gas and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and these folks are federal agents under the umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. And they are there under the orders of the president to protect monuments, 
Yes. Yeah, they're there to protect monuments, memorials, and statues. Uh, in the particular case of what's going on in Portland, Oregon, they're protecting a federal courthouse there. That is what they say they are doing. But uh, what's troubling to uh, many people, uh, I think present company included, is that they have been using uh, techniques such as grabbing people off the street, protesters, putting them into unmarked minivans and driving away with them. Uh, <laughs> pretty fun only, thing to do in a democratic society, uh, don't you think? Only to evidently later be told when the lawyers show up that this was an unlawful arrest and you need to let this person go. So that sort of sets the stage for where we are here <laughs> with this. Uh, and Not with in this a good report, place, yeah. Not in a good place, no. Certainly troubling to uh, many, many uh, good-thinking people all over. What this article outlines is that in addition to that, the Department of Homeland Security has authorized these folks to collect information on these protesters who threaten to damage or destroy public memorials and statues regardless of whether they are on federal property. And evidently this is an expansion of what the authority that, that they've typically been given to protect landmarks. And, and worth noting here, the original um, intent of, of these protections is to protect against terrorist attacks. Yeah. Uh, yes. Shall we go down the path of discussing the Patriot Act and the ability to label uh, protesters as domestic terrorists? Do, do we want to go there? I don't think we do want to go there. Uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think we, maybe we just did. <laughs> yeah. We set up a pretty robust national security apparatus after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, culminating with the formation of the Department of Homeland Security in 2003. That agency and its powers were never intended to be used in this manner for domestic surveillance of domestic threats. And this new guidance that was issued that you're talking about applies to threats against federal property, which is understandable, but it also applies to threats and vandalism against monuments. And that's supposedly uh, in reaction to the president's uh, executive order towards the end of June, essentially seeking to protect these monuments, whether they are Confederate memorials or, you know, Abraham Lincoln statutes. There's this sort of concerted effort to protect these monuments. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not just you and I saying that this is not uh, the intended purpose of the Department of Homeland Security. It is its first uh, agency head, Secretary Tom Ridge, who is seeing what's happening in Portland and saying uh, this is certainly an overreach and extent of our powers that we never anticipated. So, yeah, it, it's certainly concerning. And then, you know, I don't know if you, if you want to get uh, into this, but some of the surveillance methods they're using here are pretty invasive. So what they're outlining here, they're saying that they have to use the least intrusive means to collect information about U.S. citizens, uh, specifically physical surveillance, the use of mail covers, which is basically collecting the information that's on the outside of mailed right. packages, so, so that sort of thing. If you're getting a letter from, you know, the Antifa headquarters and uh, right. yeah, that <laughs> right. might be suspicious. They, right. They're not allowed to open the letter, but they can record everything that is on the outside of the letter. Exactly. Uh, but it, they also use uh, monitoring devices. But what's interesting is, okay, so there's some limitations here. It says uh, they're limited 
admitted to U.S. citizens believed to be engaged in or preparing for espionage, other intelligence activities, sabotage, or assassination on behalf of a foreign power organization or person. But this recent document prohibits any intelligence service activities, quote, for the sole purpose of monitoring activities protected by the First Amendment. Okay, so here's the moment where we are at tension because these are protesters and that's a protected First Amendment right, yes? Yes. Now, here's what the Trump administration and DHS would say. They would say that protesting itself is a First Amendment activity. But when you engage in vandalism or looting or things like that, that's not protected First Amendment activity. So this uh, surveillance would be acceptable. And Mm. a strict reading of the law would say as long as you're not conducting the surveillance for the sole purpose of observing First Amendment protected activity, then it's acceptable. Let's say you want to monitor people to protect against vandalism and you just incidentally happen to be uh, surveilling their protests. To be honest, I'm not sure that that's exactly what's happening here. Yes, there has been vandalism of statues in, in Portland, Oregon and in other places. Largely, these are isolated in the context of larger protests. And frankly, a lot of the vandalism is just fueled by the fact that a bunch of federal agents in camo and scary looking stormtrooper helmets are coming in and really frightening citizens and kind of riling things up a little bit. So, you know, I think true to the letter of the law, it might be true that they can engage in these practices because they're not solely targeted at First Amendment activities. But, you know, for practical purposes, I really do think they kind of are conducting this surveillance broadly against a movement, and it's a it's against a protest movement. It's not a movement of people who are vandalizing statues just for the purposes of vandalizing statues. It's it's a social movement. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, that's where I get a little bit or maybe a lot of bit fearful uh, about uh, overreach on the part of these agencies. And again... Uh, All of these powers were created for the surveillance of foreign threats for terrorists and were not supposed to be geared towards these types of domestic movements. So I think that's what the, the major change is here. Yeah, it is chilling, I think, uh, for, for many of us, for sure. How do folks push back against this? What are the available avenues for people who have trouble with this? Can lawsuits be filed? Is this something where the state can say, hey, feds, you know, get out of my state, knock it off? What, what, what can happen here? So, in fact, all of those things are happening. So on behalf of some of the protesters, groups like the ACLU have initiated lawsuits. Uh, you have local officials not only saying, you know, get the H-E double hockey sticks out of my community, <laughs> but we will arrest federal agents who are unlawfully patrolling our streets and detaining our citizens. I think the mayor of Chicago actually said that when the president threatened to put federal troops uh, in that city. So that's happening. Then there are efforts, probably futile from members of Congress, saying this type of deputizing of federal agencies, sending them into cities to lock people up in vans and conduct uh, surveillance operations is unconstitutional and and morally objectionable. 
Uh, and so the senators from Oregon, Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley, have been particularly vocal about this, as you would expect. Coincidentally, Congress right now uh, is debating a national defense authorization bill, which kind of sets our country's defense and homeland security policies. And there have been amendments considered related to sort of removing any power from the Department of Homeland Security to either send federal troops to cities in circumstances like the ones we're seeing now or to conduct these surveillance operations. Uh, Hmm. So, you know, for the average citizen out there, it's about calling your member of Congress, figuring out when they're going to be voting on amendments, when they're going to be voting on the National Defense Authorization Act, lobbying them to uh, support restrictions on this activity. That's crucially important. And if this happens to, to you personally, you potentially could have a cause of action, a number of different causes of action. It's going to be a harrowing process to go through a lawsuit. And, you know, groups like the ACLU are only going to uh, bring cases where they think they actually have a chance of winning. But right. those are really the avenues you have. I mean, I think what's particularly concerning is the federal government feels emboldened right now. The president is running largely on a platform of law and order. So it's in his political interest to have a show of force in these cities to quell these protests. And for the most part, particularly the United States Senate is kind of willing to lay down when they see this action on the part of the president. And they're certainly you know, not willing to tank a piece of defense policy legislation to enforce new rules on this. So it's certainly something to be concerned about. Yeah, and I just want to, you know, a personal note here that, you know, you and I kind of approach this, try try to be as light as we can and, and sort of, uh, you know, joke our way through it. And I don't mean for that to come across as as being uh, flippant or not taking it as seriously as, as it deserves. It, it is serious. I think, you know, for me personally to, to kind of um, approach this with humor is as much a defense mechanism as anything. So, uh, I just want to be clear there that, um, you know, I, I think I speak for both of us Absolutely. that we recognize the, the seriousness of this and we don't mean to make light of it. No, it, it is gallows humor to an extent. And it totally is a defense mechanism. I mean, yeah. it's sometimes all we can do from, you know, we can only laugh. Otherwise, we'd be crying or we'd be overcome by anger. So it is very serious. And for any listeners who, who care about these types of civil liberties violations, um, Contact your member of Congress. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't seem like it's it's effective, but you know, it only when they hear sufficiently from the public will they be forced to change policy. Yeah. All right. Well, those are our stories. It is time for us to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener on the line this week is a good friend of the show. His name is Peter. And uh, he wrote in and he said, Hi, Ben and Dave. One of the peculiarities of the story about TikTok pulling out of Hong Kong is that it's a Chinese company that's been in hot water over its own surveillance practices, not to mention potential obligations to the Chinese state. It seems odd to me that TikTok would be able to make this move in the first place unless it was a kind of PR move. Perhaps it's a move they could make to publicly shake the Chinese reputation, but it having really no practical impact because TikTok has to play along with China anyway. Just wondering if that odd contradiction came up while you were looking into the story. Have a great day. Great show as always. Peter. Yeah, Ben, this is something I've been wondering about too. What is your take on on TikTok kind of trying to distance itself from 
uh, you know, China proper? It's a good question. I mean, I think you could largely see it as a PR move on behalf of its Western users, especially as it gains a sphere of influence in the United States and other Western countries. But ultimately, they're going to have to make a decision. You can either, you know, certainly these symbolic gestures can be helpful, but you either are going to play ball with the Chinese or you're not. And for any company's bottom line, it's going to be advantageous to play ball with the Chinese. It's just a a huge market. We're talking about, what, 1.5 billion people, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it would be hard to disentangle yourself entirely and still be able to compete globally. And so, you know, I think ultimately Peter's right that a decision to withdraw might not have much of a practical impact if behind the scenes TikTok is still playing ball with uh, Chinese authorities. Right. And obligated to share data as Chinese companies are. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so I think that contradiction is definitely worth noting. And it should, you know, I think it's important context to any story you see, not just about TikTok, but other companies who take symbolic actions against the Chinese government or very, you know, publicly withdraw from Hong Kong in protest of these uh, or or, uh, in protest of what the Chinese government is doing in relation to these uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. So I think it's always good to keep a skeptical eye on that. Yeah. All right. Well, that is our listener on the line. We want to thank uh, Peter for sending that in to us. We would love to hear from you. We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. You can call in, leave us a message, and perhaps we will use it on the air. You can also send us an email to caveat at thecyberwire.com. Send us your question, and we will consider it for our show. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Alyssa Redmiles. She is a researcher in the Security and Privacy Group at Microsoft Research. And uh, the focus of our conversation was some of these privacy concerns with some of the coronavirus apps and the, the things surrounding that. Here's my conversation with Alyssa Redmiles. When they think about contact tracing from a technical perspective, um, you'll hear a lot of conversation about architecture, right? Is it centralized? Is it decentralized? And this is something not unique to contact tracing. We talk about it in a lot of technological spaces. But for the user, those architecture considerations translate into questions about privacy. You know, what might people be able to learn about me in in an app with some architecture acts? It it also raises questions of data agency. Do I have control of when my data is deleted and where it goes? Or does some, you know, trusted third party have that control? And if there is a trusted third party, 
Then, you know, we have a lot of research that shows, okay, I start to care about institutional trust. Who's providing this to me? So those are kind of the, the three things that, that center around the architecture. And then, of course, these are, you know, apps. And so like many other apps, they have particular features or benefits that users may or may not care about. They have certain mobile costs, um, especially because a lot of the apps are Bluetooth based. They may have some battery life costs as well as, you know, mobile data plan costs, which for some folks, particularly those who are lower socioeconomic status, if you have limited mobile data, that's a consideration. You, of course, have the accuracy of the app. So the way these contact tracing apps work is they're designed to notify you if you've been exposed to someone who tested positive and they use either proximity or location data to do that. So they can have errors in figuring out whether you were exposed could be false positives, could be false negatives. There's also the issue of COVID tests not being perfect. So the tests that input into the system may cause errors as well. So overall, you know, people may have some accuracy considerations. And then the final thing is just like any app, you know, there's social influence. What is the most popular app in my area? What's the most popular app my friends are using? Are there reviews, so on and so forth, that might influence users and aren't necessarily part of like the technical design, right? We can't control that, but are something that they might look for. As we've been experiencing this COVID situation globally, different nations, different areas have been coming at this from from different approaches. I mean, what has been your view as you look at it through the lens of your research here? um, How have different organizations been coming at this around the world? So I've been having a a number of conversations with different groups building apps. Uh, One is the DP3T team who's in Switzerland and Switzerland had you know, a COVID out, uh, sorry, COVID app come out this week. And I've been in dialogue with them for a while. They actually use this framework in some of their materials. And so I think they're kind of a great example of one of the groups that really took like a holistic view on app design, which influenced a lot of European policy. And I think there was a lot of concern about, you know, what are users going to want? One thing I've been seeing in the US, uh, more so than Europe, is sort of some different views on what these apps could look like. So we have what we could now call traditional contact tracing apps, but you can also have things like the Narrowcast app, um, which is proposed in the PACT contact tracing protocol. And the idea of that is you eliminate a lot of the privacy concerns by not collecting user data, but you are able to broadcast to the user locations where a number of people are known to have tested positive have recently visited. And so you get sort of a hotspot map near you without having to give up any of your data. We've also seen people looking at data donation. Would you be willing to donate your location information and your test status, as well as sort of news aggregation apps? So there's been a lot of diversity even beyond contact tracing and solutions that people are trying to come up with. You know, one of the things that that I'm seeing reported is this notion that in order for these apps to be effective, you have to reach a certain percentage of your population being active and using the apps. Uh, It was interesting in in your research, this is something that you address here, and that it's not necessarily a linear sort of thing when you reach certain thresholds. Can you explain some of that to us? Commonly, people kind of say, okay, you know, for contact tracing, it's going to scale quadratically with the number of people using because you're helping the people you're connected to, right? And in order to try to figure out, like, how good is good enough for these apps, we started to take a look at you know, if we gave users some interpretable but quantitative estimates of accuracy or privacy risk, 
you know, at what point can we see like the majority adopting? And while we see like a, a approximately linear relationship where like more accuracy leads to more adoption, more privacy leads to more adoption, um, we see some boundary effects. And this looks similar to like prospect theory in economics, where basically improvements in the bottom 10% and the top 10%. So let's say like an app that reduces infection rate of those around you by 89% versus 99%, we see really big jumps in those boundary areas and less so in the middle. So people appear to care less about jumps between, say, 50 and 80% in accuracy or infection rate prevention. And this is pretty typical to human decision-making and is just something, you know, that's maybe a little counterintuitive if you're an app designer because you're like, okay, you know, I have two more percentage points of accuracy. That's great. Uh, but hmm. it may turn out that a user doesn't view it the same way. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm wondering, you know, here in the U.S., it's my sense that there really hasn't been a big push for this so far. I mean, we've heard of, of various organizations who have been working on this. Probably the, the best known was the collaboration between Apple and Google. But um, I, I haven't really heard anything from, for example, you know, my state governor saying, hey, everybody, we're going to be using this. You know, this is going to be a way that we're going to try to make everyone safer. How much of this is is a sort of a, a PR thing from the top of, of leadership, uh, people in leadership positions being able to get people on board with this sort of thing? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question and the landscape is continuing to change. So I'd say in Europe, it seems there's been more push toward adoption. And like I said, Switzerland had an app rollout this week. So I think in Europe, we may see more adoption. In the U.S., you're right, it has been kind of, uh, there has been a lack of like common push. Um, and I think part of that is that we haven't quite figured out how are we going to have these apps collaborate with manual contact tracers, right? Because they're not intended to be a replacement. Um, and certainly there's a ton of expertise that public health workers have that apps just really can't bring. But the hope is that these types of things can help scale that work. And I think that's something that that's still being kind of negotiated and figured out. And that may be part of why we haven't seen kind of a big public push. The other thing I'm seeing people talk about is, you know, whether these types of apps or some type of COVID-19 app is going to be used by employers, for example, to do contact tracing like within a company and keep track of employee health. And that's a that's an interesting sort of different perspective where you have not a governmental authority, but uh, entity that people certainly are very behoven to who might be releasing these apps. In your mind, what would be the ideal process for rolling something like this out? As you turn the various dials to get people to buy in, what would be the best approach? My concise answer is that we should do efficacy testing, trial testing, A-B testing, whatever you want to call it, in sort of a small localized area, right? So this is something that in medicine, there are, you know, particularly categorized stages of medical trials, right, to make sure that something is working well enough and that we aren't misadvertising it and so forth. And I think for technological products, we don't always push the same burden of proof, right? Like we tell people to do security behavior, but we don't necessarily measure how much that security behavior is going to reduce their risk and whether it's worth the cost. 
Here, I think the consequences are pretty critical, right? Does this help reduce infection rate? Does it help people stay safer? And also critically, are people going to act when the app tells them something? Or are we just sort of tricking ourselves into thinking we're helping like a placebo effect? So I think, a, you know, a small localized city level trial, probably for two weeks is what we're seeing, would really help us understand, you know, does this help manual contact tracing scale? Does it actually improve things or does it give people a false sense of security and make things worse? Without a real pilot test, it's pretty hard to know. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, there's also that element that being that we're in the midst of this pandemic, it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's that old saying about building the airplane, you know, while you're in the air. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, I mean, here in the U.S., are, are there any examples where these apps have been uh, released where people are actually using them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Care19 app has been released for a few weeks in North Dakota. And we're starting to see, you know, reviews on the Google Play Store and other interesting sort of performance and feedback metrics. So that'll be a, a great potential test as we look toward trying to release more of these apps. All right, Ben, what do you think? So my reaction to this is sort of twofold. It's a very interesting conversation that's sort of been rendered entirely hypothetical because our country, as you mentioned in the interview, has just not shown any organized interest in mass contact tracing the way European uh, countries have uh, or, mm -hmm. you know, countries in East Asia, for example. So it just seems not silly, but it just seems... Premature. A little academic. <laughs> yes, academic is, is the word to use. It seems a little academic to be talking about the intricacies of the difference in contact tracing applications, whether they are Bluetooth, whether it's um, you know some of the more advanced forms that she's talking about, just because we as a country have not made a commitment to contact tracing, either through applications or, frankly, uh, through what, uh, you know, she talked about in the interview as, as the most important aspect of contact tracing, and that's actually having human contact tracers who are right. analysts and know how to work with a large body of data. And it's not just the federal government. I mean, there's been no effort at the federal government to organize contact tracing in this country. Um, but it's also state governments. I mean, we've seen uh, she talked about the the effort in North Dakota uh, where they chose a state-specific application. You've mm -hmm. seen it a little bit in, in states like Massachusetts, but besides that, it just has not been something we've seen implemented on a large scale in most other states. And first of all, we need to get better control of cases before contact tracing is even effective because it's just when you're you know seeing 80,000 cases a day, 70,000, 60,000 it's just not going to be practical to do contact tracing. You know, if right. we are able to suppress those cases, then we're really going to have to commit both monetarily and culturally to engaging in contact tracing and, you know, weighing the privacy implications of applications, but taking into consideration that that might be the best way to tamp down this pandemic. So yeah, it, it was an interesting conversation. Uh, to me, it, it seems academic right now. Um, but I'll keep my hopes up that maybe our country will be more interested in contact tracing going forward. Yeah, really interesting work that uh, Alyssa and her team at Microsoft are doing there. And, and nice to know that, you know, that 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 is something that Microsoft sees fit to invest in, you know, that kind of work. I think it's uh, it's a good reminder that uh, that they're out there supporting those kinds of efforts, you know, for the greater good. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening.
And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.